Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. I am Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm so glad that you guys have come on out to join us for worship and to cover such a great topic this week. We get to talk about God. So, um, yep, in the next uh, few minutes or so, I'm going to teach you everything that you need to know about God. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how that, we'll see how that goes. Um, it's, uh, it's part of our annual Bible reading plan. Uh, and uh, this has brought us to this topic today. And, you know, this week, it's, uh, there were a couple of days this week where, for whatever reason, I had a number of, uh, you know, those sort of anxious mornings where you wake up and before you even get out of bed, you know, your, your mind starts sort of racing through all of the problems and the situations and the difficulties. And so, you know, you start working through your plans and then, you know, you, after you get through your plans, you come up with your contingency plans. And then after your contingencies, you work on your contingencies for your contingency plans, right? And you're, you're doing all of this kind of fretting and worrying and all that before you even get out of bed. So before my feet actually hit the ground, I've got all of this like chaos running in my brain. So then shortly after that, you know, I'm out of bed and I'm going through email and I get the, the daily uh, reading plan uh, for, you know, that we're all, that many of us are going through. And so I click on and I start reading it and it's all of these great thoughts about this incredible God that we serve. And I'm like, you know, how, how does, how does my behavior sitting there, you know, thinking about these things and fretting about these things, how do they interact with my theology, with my thoughts about God? Do they? Is there any relationship between the kinds of things that I am thinking about, worrying about, wondering about, working on, and my theology, my, my study of God, my thoughts of God. You know, maybe for you, you might experience it like this, where maybe you're wrapped up in your own little world, and you know it. You know, you, you sort of see a self-centered streak running through you. What do your thoughts about God have to do with that? You know, does your theology matter? Or maybe, you know, you're racked with guilt about some bad decisions that you've made. Or you've got some addictions that you're struggling with and they keep, they keep whipping you. And, you know, how does your thought about God impact that? You know, does your theology matter? Maybe you're so enamored with your children that they've become the reason that you live. They're the center of your existence. And everything you do, everything you think, everything you plan revolves around your kids. See, in a case like that, theology matters. Well, maybe you're just saying, you know, I, I, I actually just don't feel loved. I feel disconnected in this world. I feel alone. I feel, you know, I question what my value is. See, in a situation like that, your theology matters. And what you think, 
what you believe, what you trust, what you know about God matters. It impacts everything. It changes how you live, the way you feel, what you do, the tenor of your relationships, your hope or your lack of hope, your vision for the future. It can impact every area of your life if you let it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to see what we can learn about God in the next few minutes. And if you remember, the question was posed through our whole New City Catechism. That's the annual reading plan that we're participating in. The question, of course, is what is God? And the answer, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection. Goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. This all-encompassing vision of the sovereign creator God. That's, that's the, the thumbnail sketch as to what is God. Now we also came across Psalm 86 this week as part of that conversation. And that's what we're going to dig into a little bit more deeply here this morning. Psalm 86. If you could open up in a Bible, that would be great. Psalm 86 and just... It's helpful as we're kind of opening up God's word. Leave it open because we're going to be kind of in the text, the whole, the whole of the message in and out of it. I'll be bouncing around uh, in it. And it's helpful for us to realize, you know, the Bible is the revelation of God. And this is an essential thing for us. Sometimes we don't think about this. But if God is the creator God above all else, then we can't study him through direct observation. He's not actually a part of this creation only insofar as he allows himself to be, or he wants himself to be. And so we can learn a lot about God by studying his creation. That's what they call general revelation. We get to learn what, what he thinks about certain things like beauty and creativity and the world and morality. We get to study those things and have, make, draw some inferences about God through, by, by looking at what he made. But if you want specific revelation, if you want something particular to know about God, the only way to know it would be if he chose to reveal it to us because he's outside of the creation. We can't subject him to independent study unless he wants to be. That's what the Bible claims to be. It claims to be the particular revelation of God so that we can know who he is and how we ought to live in the world that he created. And that's why we come to the scriptures every week and why we study them and why we're going to look now at Psalm 86. Starting in verse 1, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No, need, no deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. 
Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies, enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The first great truth we see from this text is that God is strong. God is strong. And when I say strong, I'm capturing all of those ideas about God and his power. So he's almighty. He's sovereign. He's the creator of everything. I'm using it as a shorthand way of explaining all of these other attributes of God. He is strong. And we get to see that the author really wanted to emphasize this because as you work through the text, you'll hear, if, if you were listening, you heard it, he says Lord a lot of times, right? But if you notice the spelling of them, or not really the spelling, but the typeface of them, you'll notice they're different. And so there's sometimes where Lord shows up where it's spelt like you would expect, capital L-O-R-D, lowercase O-R-D. But then there's other times, like in the first verse, if you notice, it says, hear me, Lord, and it's all caps, that's the translator's way of letting you know that there is a particular name of God being used here. It's his name, it's his name how he revealed himself. It's Yahweh. And, and in this text, in this short psalm, he uses that seven times. And that's associated with his great strength, with his, with his power. This is the sovereign Lord. So when it uses this name of God, it's really emphasizing the strength of God. And he uses both, of course. But this is one that when he, when, he, when he keeps hitting this idea, he's trying to raise the, the tenor of this conversation so that we go, wow, this is, this is a powerful God. And he is. He's strong and he's powerful. He's also self-existent, meaning he didn't need anything or anyone to bring him into existence. And I, I just wanted to kind of, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes on this idea because for a lot of us, it's easy to, to kind of feel like, oh, you know, we've been told a lot. You know, we believe in God. That's nice for you. You got some faith. I'm glad you're able to, to believe, you know, make that blind leap. You know, you'll hear this sometimes about uh, people who, who believe in God, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know what? We can't believe that. We're more scientific than you. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because it, it speaks to the kind of power that we see in God. When, when we say that God has been self-existent, that he's been here forever, that he needed no beginning, in some ways, that's a statement of faith. That's true. But in other ways, it's actually just an observation that we make about the world. Because what's the solution? What's the, I mean, what's the alternative to that? Now, you all have heard of the Big Bang. Some 15 billion years ago, the universe had a beginning. But where did it, where'd the bang, what blew up? You know, where'd the bang come from? You know, what was it? Well, the scientists will tell you that it was a singularity. That's the name they give for it. It was a singularity, and here's how they describe it. It's a single point that was infinitely small, infinitely hot, and infinitely dense. Okay, so you're adding infinite language to describe a natural occurrence, language that we would have used to describe God. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. All right, we'll, we'll go with that. We grant that your singularity was infinite in some way. Tell us more about this singularity. And here's how one writer, scientific writer put it. The singularity didn't appear in space. Rather, space began inside the singularity. 
Prior to the singularity, nothing existed, not space, time, matter, or energy, nothing. So where and in what did the singularity appear if not in space? We don't know. We don't know where it came from, why it's here, or even where it is. All we really know is that we are inside of it, and at one time, it didn't exist, and neither did we. Okay. That sounds a lot like a statement of faith. It sounds like a belief in what happened in this moment before time and space began. It's a faith statement. Now, you might say, yes, but it's, from, it's an observable faith statement. That is true. In the same way that we as followers of Christ say that we are making observations about the way the world works. So you're telling me you believe in the singularity. Did your singularity come into existence out of nothing? Yes. Okay, then I say that God could come into existence out of nothing. What's the difference? Well, no, no, the singularity always existed in some form. Maybe it's expanding, maybe it's contracting. It's eternal. Perfect, because that's what I believe. You believe in eternal matter. Some matter energy thing contracts on itself, expands into a universe. Maybe it contracts again. Who really knows what happens? You believe in an eternal, eternal matter. I believe in an eternal being. It seems pretty much equal to me at this point, except for one little thing. Your eternal matter can't explain some of the things that we do observe about the universe. And my eternal being does explain it. So for instance, intelligence. Everywhere you go in the world where you find something that was designed, the first thing you do is assume someone made it. So you're, you're going through the jungles in some uncharted areas and you come across this gigantic pyramid. Your first thought is, wow, I wonder how that got here. I wonder how that appeared out of nothing, out of the ground. You would say, obviously it took intelligence to build it. Someone designed and built with a whole lot of energy, creativity, intelligence. So you're telling me that all that the world is, the sophistication of the human creature the complexity of the DNA code, all of those things didn't take intelligence? Of course they did. Everything else we see in the world that has a design had intelligence behind it. So from my observations, it's actually more rational to believe in an, in an eternal being with intelligence than it is matter without intelligence. Take beauty. Is it really possible that all of these things were created in such a way just because of of happenstance, of chance? Or does the beauty or the things that stir our hearts, the sunsets and the sunrises and the flower budding from, you know, from the stalk or from that first little piece of grass that comes out of the winter, all of that stirring up of the heart, the beauty of art and of music, what's the likelihood that this is all just a freak chance of nature or does it betray beauty in the creation, in the very fabric of the creation? Well, I think it betrays a heart of beauty, which ties in with the intelligence. It's a being of infinite beauty. What about morality? Find me an explanation for morality that is outside of God. There is none. If you just have eternal matter and all of this just sprang into existence, there is no morality. It's all situational ethics. There's nothing that is genuinely right and genuinely wrong. Genocide becomes nothing more than stepping on an anthill. 
Without God, there cannot be a real, legitimate, sustained morality. So you take your eternal matter, I take my eternal being, and I'll say my eternal being with intelligence, beauty, and morality is far more logical to believe in than your eternal matter that has none of those things. See, that's the power we start to get at when we start to think about this powerful, strong God. He is, in fact, the author of it all. He's brought everything we know to be good in this world to us because he can. This strong God does marvelous deeds. We see in verse 10. He's the only one of his kind in verse 8. He demands in verse 11 our undivided love. And this is an important part. So take a look at verse 11. He says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Now, this is an interesting idea because the Bible writers do this all the time. They, they link fear of God with worship, with love, with joy. And we don't like that. That's not, that doesn't sit well with us. When we fear something, it seems to dispel all of those things. It casts all those things out. When you fear something, you don't have joy in it. When you fear something, it's not love. You fear it isn't something you want to worship. You'll do it if you have to, but it doesn't, it doesn't elicit fear. I mean, it doesn't elicit worship. But the way the Bible writers use this word does. In fact, David, this is King David writing, he wants to fear God. Why would you want to fear him? Because when the, the Bible writers use this idea, they're, they're not talking about it simply in the realm of dread or terror, which we should have if he's actually the all-powerful creator of the universe. There is some type of fear if you cross him uh, and dread that you ought to have. But that's not what they're focusing on. What they're focusing on is the undivided loyalty. That's why the two can go hand in hand for them. They're talking about a singularity of focus, like you would have if you had a phobia, where you just couldn't think of anything other than your fear. That's how the writers are using it. It's, it's the full consumption of the heart in God. You can't think or feel any other way apart from him, and David was saying, that's what I want. When we talk about the fear of God, that's the experience that I want with God. And I think it can be a very helpful thing for us that would benefit Christians in our day and age to recapture this concept of the fear of God in its legitimate way. It's an old quote from a man, F.W. Grant, but I think it's helpful in, in kind of seeing how the fear of God could help us today. He says this, This is indeed what is everywhere the great lack among the people of God. How much of our lives is not spent in positive evil? but frittered away and lost in countless petty diversions which spoil effective, effectually the positiveness of our testimony for God. How Satan must wonder when he sees us turn away from his temptations when realized as his temptations, and yet we yield ourselves with scarce a thought to endless trifles. If we examined our lives carefully in such an interest as this, how we would realize the multitude of needless anxieties, of self-imagined duties, of permitted relaxations, of innocent trifles which incessantly divert us from that in which alone is profit. I know that's a lot of words, but what he's capturing here for us is that Christians today, we're not, even if we're not necessarily in open sin, but many of us continue to live for, for trifles. We squander opportunities. We give no deep thought 
to the claims of the almighty God, this creator of the universe. And this is a strong and a powerful God, and he isn't to be trifled with. He isn't to be trifled with. The second great truth is that God is good. This good God shows mercy woven throughout this. Verse 2, verse 6, verse 16. Have mercy on me, Lord. Shows up again and again and again. And this good God, he shows his mercy by forgiving us. Now, what, what does a person need to do before they are forgiven? What does a person need to do before they're forgiven? What's that? Repent, yes, before that. What do they have to do even before that? Confess, yep, they have to do that. But even before that, what do they have to do? Be remorseful, absolutely. And before that, they have to do something wrong. Yes, thank you, see? Thought we were going to be here all day. Yes, you have, to, you have to do something wrong. And I think this is a part that doesn't sit well with a lot of us because we don't want to see ourselves in that light. But if you don't actually get to the point where you say, wow, I have done something wrong, then you can't actually go and seek his forgiveness. You've got to be able to identify with the sinner. And then and only then will you be able to take advantage of, say, verse 5. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. You see, he is good. And there is no doubt that we need forgiveness. Even though in our day and age, it's not something we want, right? This isn't the, it's not how we see ourselves, I'm a self-made man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm smart and hardworking, and I lift myself up by my own bootstraps, and you know, this is how we like to see ourselves. I don't need anything. I, don't, I, I can take care of myself. My sin isn't nearly as significant as you make it out to be. It's just little stuff I deal with. They're little mistakes, little character flaws. You see, we don't identify with the weight, the full weight of our sin. We like to make excuses for it. And if you're making excuses for it, then you don't need forgiveness. But there is need for forgiveness. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Have you done that? Loved him with everything you have all the time without fail? Because if you haven't, you've broken the great commandment. The single most important law in God's entire canon, you broke. Perhaps he should apply the greatest penalty to that violation. That's how we do it. The greatest laws, you break them, we apply the greatest punishments to those people who violate them. Maybe that's how God should do it. This week, maybe you lost your temper with your kids. They're not just your kids, right? They're his as well. They've been entrusted to you. Have you done what you needed to do? Have you embraced all that God would have had you do for them? Have you cared for them the way that God would have cared for them? Have they been in your hands and, and cared for in a way that you, haven't, you feel like you've never made a mistake in that? I know I certainly can't say that. Not even close. Thank God for forgiveness. Did you withhold good or refuse to lend a hand or decide not to give money because you were selfish? Did you withhold encouragement from someone who needed it? Thank God for forgiveness. Thank God. Or maybe you've continued in those sinful habits that you knew were wrong and you've continued to let those addictions get the better of you. Thank God there's forgiveness. See, it's the work of Christ on the cross where we get to secure this. 
You know, God revealed his holy power, his wrath against sin on the cross. He poured out his wrath to judge sin on his son. And all of his fury and all of his wrath was being poured out on his son so that it wouldn't be poured out on us. So that we could receive the forgiveness of sin because once his fury is spent, once the wrath of God is satisfied as it was on the cross, all that's left is his forgiveness rooted in his goodness. Will we cry out to that? Because God is good. So here's what we need to do. We need to embrace this tension. This is a tough one because I've given you these two, these two handles to hold on to. You've got the fact that God is strong and the fact that God is good. And these are the two handles. And I, I know there's tension between them because sometimes you're going to be going through a tough patch, a lot going on, you're suffering, and you say to yourself, God, why am I still going through this? Why am I suffering? Can you stop it? Because if you can, I'd like you to. And nothing happens. And so you have to ask yourself, well, wait a second. If he, if he doesn't stop it, maybe he doesn't want to stop it. If he doesn't want to stop it, doesn't that mean he's not good? And you say, no, 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 no. He has to be good. He has to be good. And he is good. I know he's good. The Bible tells me he's good. And because he's good, why doesn't he stop it? Well, maybe he, he can't. Well, if he can't, then he's not strong. You see, we get in this tension and we create this loop of thinking when we err on one side or on the other. And I'm saying you've got to embrace this tension because it's where the scriptures leave us. And it says, you know, that this world is broken, that there is sin in this world and we've been given free will and God has allowed sin to continue to reign and continue to cause pain. And for his own reasons that he has not disclosed to us, God has decided to allow that to continue. And until that day comes when he decides to make his his strength fully known in his goodness, we have to embrace this tension because the alternative is far more dangerous and far more damaging than the tension of this reality. Then we got to cry out to God. This is what happened in verse one. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Are you poor and needy? Do you see yourself as poor and needy here in Long Island, the bedroom community of New York City? one of the highest per capita incomes of any county in the country? Do you see yourself as poor and needy? This is King David. This is one of the most powerful kings the nation of Israel has ever seen. One of the wealthiest kings beside his son that Israel has ever seen. This guy doesn't seem too poor or too needy for anything. And yet he starts saying, I'm poor and needy. He had more than any of us could ever imagine. And he saw himself as poor and needy. He had the accolades of a nation who adored him. And he saw himself as poor and needy. He had victory upon victory and achievement upon achievement. And he said he was poor and needy. That's why he could cry out to God. That's why he was called a, God, a man after God's own heart. Because he didn't let the trappings of this world delude him into thinking he was anything but poor and needy in God's sight. So he would continually cry out to him. And he would often do that in worship. In verse 9, all the nations you have made will come and worship before me. They will bring glory 
to your name. Now, I talked about worship all last week, and so I don't want to rehash all of it, but I want to encourage you. If you weren't here, that was, a, that was a, a particularly important message for us because not only did we talk about what worship is, we talked about why we worship, which is something we haven't really talked about in, in a very, very long time as a community of faith, but we also went further and we talked about how we worship. So we actually looked at, at the mechanics and, and the actual behaviors that we do as a church, not just the church broadly, but we as a church beacon. And we looked at our worship habits and so if you want to learn more about why we worship and how we worship and why it is that people would raise their hands or close their eyes or sing songs or anything like that, we, we addressed a whole lot of those questions last Sunday. And so I would really encourage you guys, I don't want to rehash it all. It's very important for us as we continue to move forward as a worshiping community of faith that you guys kind of listen to it and, and get, uh, get up, to, up to speed and caught up on it if you missed it. And then we can rest in him. We can rest. We can let our worries and our fears dissipate in his power. And we can let our insecurities and our, and our self-doubts get absorbed into his goodness. And when we let this happen, then, then, the, then the Sabbath principles throughout the scriptures, this place of rest, it's not one day. It's not supposed to be. It's a new thing that's experienced in Christ. It's the, it's the soul at rest. And it can be at rest because we can trust that he is strong. And that he is good. And when we can get to that place, our soul can actually begin to rest firmly in him and experience the beauty of the promised land here, now, ahead of time, the Sabbath that is ours. And all of this culminates when we decide to pursue Christ alone. Pursue Christ alone. And this has to do with that single-mindedness that, that I was talking about earlier. This is the fear of God component. I want us to begin to cultivate this single-mindedness about God. And we have to remember, yes, God can't be trifled with. Don't think that you can, you know, put him on a shelf or bench him. He's the creator. You're the created. If God decides to intervene and interact in your life, if he decides to undo what you have been doing, if he decides to fight against your efforts, he will win. He's not to be trifled with. You don't think you can just discard him, push him off to the side, and there not be any consequences. He is the sovereign, powerful God, and he isn't to be trifled with. But he's also a good God. So why would you want to? Why would you want to try to shelve him or bench him or keep him at arm's length? Why would you not want to embrace him and, and invite him in? And take advantage of that promise that when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. I mean, he's a good God. You want to cry out to him. You want to experience him. It's what your soul longs for. You can now wrap your heart and your mind in Christ and pursue Christ alone. In fact, we're going to do that even a little bit right now. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and uh, we've got a couple songs that uh, we're going to be going through here and we're going to be continuing as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And so what I'm going to be asking you guys to do is to be reflecting on these, these great truths. He is a strong and a powerful God, but he isn't unapproachable. He's good. In fact, he longs and desires for proximity to us, for a closeness to us. And this is an incredible gift this is something that is unique 
to the Christian faith, this God who says, though I am creator of all, I want to come close to you and I want you to come close to me. And in forgiveness, I've made that possible. In no greater example of his power and his love will you find than at the table. Mm -hmm.